Welcome to the Woman's Own Book Club Guest Author of the Month. Dearest Mulricky is a gruelling book in which Louisa Zondo, lawyer and political activist, shares not just the details and developments of her life, but the blows, the damage, the pain and the joy that accompanied it, culminating in the catalyst for her book, The Suicide of Her Second Son, Ricky Rick. Well, for that reason, it's not perhaps an easy read, nor one can imagine was it an easy write. And in it, Louisa, one-time CEO of the South African Human Rights Commission, currently acting executive director of Oxfam, covers her life and that of her family from what she calls the beginning, through her career that spans some enormously troubled years in the history of South Africa. It also covers the births of her four sons and her relationships with the many people who've impacted her life and shared it, like her partner, Kumi Naidu. But it also covers, significantly, in a letter to Mariki, an expedition that Louisa went on to Mount Everest Base Camp just 25 days after her son's passing. Well, in Ricky's honour, she'll be launching the Ricky Rick Foundation for the promotion of artivism very soon. So to start then with the catalyst, I asked her first to tell me about Ricky, the baby, the boy, the man and the troubled soul who was so very close to his family. Who? Ricardo Mariki, as we would call him at home. First, it's important to, to say he came from a huge yearning for a second baby. And so that remained a, a very particular sense in which he was held in my heart. And so when I, I had to leave him and go to the UK to study for my LLM, that was a very, very, very hard decision. It was a hard process because he was cute. He had just 10, 10 one year old, and he was such a, a cute being, so cute that he had a, a very, very strange shape of a head. As my mother is shopping one day at the, at Game City in Durban, it was still a thing to shop at Game City, a woman comes over and just goes for his head and starts pressing, compressing the front and the back and saying, you must press it because you are so concerned about the shape of his head. It was so strange, but he was beautiful in that way. He just, as, even as a baby, just pulled at the heartstrings. And growing up also, he was unique in the sense that he was a caring baby. He was a caring young child. So he always wanted to be at home and around people at home. Even if you, you send him off to play outside with the other children in the neighborhood, ah, he'll go off for about 10 minutes and he'll be back <laughs> just to be around uh, us at home. So that sense of him being really connecting, connected, and yearning for constant connection is, is, is a very big yeah. Uh, sense yeah. about him. I think he had a very good relationship too with his grandmother. But Absolutely. And, and family values. Family yeah. values, the name of one of his albums. Yeah. It, so family was really huge for him. Yeah. 
But, you know, you said something that was so significant when you went to the UK. It was really hard to leave him. And yeah. your career and your mothering yeah. have been at odds all the way along. And I think there isn't a woman, a working woman out there who won't relate. Yeah. So to bring up children 100% and to work 100% is really difficult. Yeah. Something that you've battled with yeah. all, your, all your life. Yes. And one of the things that I wish I had done even at that very young age, was deeply, to deeply pay attention to that. In my, my way of holding life, of just being in activity and, and, and moving over things and not pausing to, to really see and feel and locate what is happening in a proper sense of how I feel, and therefore, if I'm feeling this way, what would be the best step for me to take? I did not do that with my career, my parenting, and my love, just my relationships with, with people. I, I just was, when I look at it, I think it was just a bout of activity. Mm. And sometimes one has a sense that it's what was needed, and therefore I had to be in that mode. But, but I just do imagine that pausing and taking in and asking for advice and being slower could have had different results. Well, it's ironic because I think it was Ricky who used to say, stop being such a busy body, you know, stop being so busy. But over and above that... And there isn't, again, a woman out there who wouldn't relate to what you're saying. And I think you mustn't, I want to say, don't beat yourself up. You've done that in the book. You've reflected long and hard on that. But a third component to your life, which was very busy, was you had the children, you had your love life, you had the children, you had your career. But you had what was going on in South Africa to contend with. And these were very difficult years, 70s, 80s, 90s. Very, very difficult times, and I think right from the get-go as a little girl, your sense of justice was well honed. I think famously at 11, you decided you wanted to be a lawyer. So were you brought up with a great consciousness of what was going on in South Africa and a great feeling that you, it was incumbent on you to do something about it? Actually, the conversations in my home were never directly about... Apartheid as a system, the injustices of this system, the need for resistance and for a building of a different way of being um, which, which centers blackness in, in, in a way that is healing and empowering. It, it, conversations in my, my home were never about that. Conversations in my, my home, though, were about what it means to be a, a Christian and what it means to be caring. And um, I think those conversations were not always upfront and clear, but it always was about that. Everything was about that. And so I think I may have come into the, hell, into, in, into the world holding in my clenched fists the, the objective of making it better for others because I, I had this sense from 
from as long as I could remember. I mean, I, my mother reminded me, and, and it's strange that this is occurring now, but my mother reminded me that a memory that I had of a woman who was looking very old and tired and had a strange way of speaking was a memory from two years old. So this woman who's, who had a strange name, she was called Sintiampele. Sintiampele drank a lot. And so she was just suffering from that. But my heart was drawn to Sintiampele. And my mother tells me that you would have been two years old when you met Sikyambele, and she made my heart sore. I just wanted to, to take her and cuddle her. So that's the sense that I, I, I will relate to when you ask me where did the sense of justice come from. I think I came clenching it in my fists, and I think the messages of goodness and connection uh, to goodness came in my home through the conversations around being a Christian. Yeah. Something you passed on, yeah. certainly something you passed on to Moriki. Mm. It's interesting that you mentioned that memory and many memories. Mm. Writing this book, is, it's heavy with memories. It's mm. light, it's loving with memories, but it's filled with memories. So it's been quite a journey for you. But again, interesting that it was Mariki, mm. even when he was a young man, he said, write it down, stop being busy, write it down, I want to know. And I think that actually you didn't, wasn't just because you were busy, you also didn't really want to share stuff that was too sore, because a lot of it is, was very sore, is very sore, as we read in the book. So it was a blessing that you were able to do it, but a very, very tough journey. And it was a tough journey that was sort of buffeted a little bit by the snow, because 25 days after he died, after he took his life, you went off to do an expedition at the Mount, at Mount Everest Base Camp, which feels to me like the sort of genesis of writing this book. Was that what happened, or am I making it too literal? When you started to write the letter to him, on the expedition. Was that the beginning of when you started to think about your life? So it is strange to me that writing as I was walking up the mountain and having those uh, letters, which were rather brief, those letters posted and shared in, in, in public and get, getting responses from people who, who felt they were useful for them and who were thankful that I was communicating and sharing in that way um, did not actually lead to me writing the book. It actually made me believe that I was going to write the book because I believed it would be helpful. It made me believe that I would be able to write the book because I got feedback that, oh, you write in an effective way. We love the way you're, you're writing. So it, may, it gave me that sense. But it actually did not enable me to write the book. From April to July of 2022, I had prepared the framework for the book, and the publisher already had that at the end of July. And I imagined that by, the, by September, the, the manuscript would be complete and everything would move smoothly because I wanted to write the book. 
Ricardo had asked me for the stories. He had asked me, and opening up on the mountain gave me, gave me a sense that I would be able to, but I was not able to. And it was only in January of 2023 that with the assistance of a, a very beautiful wordsmith, um, Hagen Engler, I got to tell the story, uh, start telling the story, and he played it back to me in written story form, and I started engaging with the writing of that story. And so it was in that process then that I actually began writing, and it was because the process was not linear, the process was not about uh, downloading what is happening now, It was uh, deeper, and I had to be in therapy to be assisted through the bringing out of these things that are about my story in order to be able to write. I had to go through that, and that's why I I couldn't write it any sooner than the end of January. I can understand your previous resistance to not wanting to write it down because a lot of, as I say, is very sore and it mm. requires a lot of, you know, visceral digging, mining mm. of, of memory, some of which are mm. lovely, some of which are, are quite hard. Mm. So I imagine fondly that you would have sat down and right, deep breath, I'm going to do this. But it required sort of the galvanization of the therapy. Was that in itself a big step? Because it was some time after Ricky died that I think it was it was only in the June yeah. that you actually went to therapy. Was that in itself a big step? Because it's not an easy thing to do to talk to somebody. For me in particular, it was a huge, huge, huge step. It was a huge step because I had formed a view 25 years before my start of these uh, uh, sessions with the therapist that... I actually am unable to sit in therapy. I had formed a view that sitting in therapy literally suffocated me um, and, and it would kill me to sit in therapy. So after two sessions um, with a therapist, I never did sit with a therapist. I had one session which was organized by my company after my mother died, but that was a different thing. I was just making sense of... I was trying to make sense of why everything was crumbling after my mother died, and and, and I had one session, and I got some wisdom from it, and I took the advice, and I went on a sentimental journey to remember my mother. That helped. But I had the view that therapy for my life doesn't work. It kills me. So when it was impossible to continue life in the normal mode that I knew after Ricardo passed, I had no resistance to therapy. And it was also particularly different because I was going into therapy with Kumi and I was very much aware that nothing was working. Our relationship was not working. Life, 
my, of my own was not working. I was not coping with managing anything. My financial situation was just not uh, uh, coping at all. My relationships with family, my sons, nothing, nothing was, was, was working. And uh, Ricardo's death just threw it all at me and made me see what I had, I had just been rolling over all this time. Yes. Yeah. Rolling over is a good expression because it feels like you were a, a, a stone gathering a yeah. lot of moss yeah. and you would have been gathering all this stuff. It would have been more and more difficult to, to yeah. get rid of it. Yeah. So when you went into therapy, lovely that you were able to go in with Kumi as well mm. because it was a shared experience for both of you. It, would, it must have been very difficult to know where to start. I mean, I don't know what a therapist says, but, you know, how are you feeling? But where do you even begin? That is a very, very important part of therapy working for me because we, we were guided by our, our therapist to begin. And so we came in with a whole narrative about what is wrong. And we just, he allowed us to just Offload. drop it all. And we dropped everything. What is wrong? What is wrong? And, and even that process of, of doing that was hard, but we were sitting in a room that is suddenly completely different from everything. It is safe. It has a therapist. And so even as we dropping everything like this, and it, 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 it could threaten us, but it feels safe because there's a therapist here and, it, and somebody that we trust. And after hearing all of that, he helped us start working through it by bringing us to an understanding that life may look the way it looks now, but it doesn't start now. So what we have to do is to start walking a journey of our lives to see how we have been shaped, to see how we have come to deal with these events in our lives in the way that we've dealt with that, them, and to see how we actually are either meant or not meant to be with each other. And therefore, to see what we want to work with in life. Yeah. So that was a very, very useful process for us, yeah. for me, and of course for Kumi. I know it was very useful. So that therapy, which was something I feared and and just had no relationship with, became something I stayed in, and something I looked forward to every week because even when there were difficult things, I knew that. I could go to therapy and find a safe, safe place, safe space to, you know, break it down for myself. Yeah. Gosh, that's that's a very useful and interesting thing to hear because mm. there, I think I'm sure there are a lot of people who think don't mm. even talk about therapy. It's yeah. just too painful. Yeah. Mm. Pre Kumi, if I can call it that, mm. in the years pre Kumi, there were many op uh, opportunities or occasions when perhaps you would have benefited from therapy. However, because you were such a busy soul, you were doing all sorts of things. You were in and out of when I say in and out of relationships. I don't mean that you were promiscuously, but there were relationships. There were relationships with your children with your family 
most particularly with your career and with the country, because you were working with a lot of things, Constitutional Assembly, the Centre for Criminal Justice. There were so many things, so many demands being made on you. And you work through a lot of that in the book. So it would have been a very good opportunity for you to sort of go through it all. I imagine if you had had a paintbrush, it would have been quite interesting to see where the colourful bits were, where the bits you wanted to blot out were. How difficult was it, A, to remember it all, and B, did each one of those memories with your career come with its own set of (gasps) difficulties? It it was not very easy. Let me not put it that way. I did not know when I started writing that I had a bag full of things that I could write about. I, 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 it was not in absolute awareness. I had the framework. I had, you know, perhaps periods of my life that I knew I could talk about, but I didn't know that I had things that filled a, a book to, to say about the different uh, parts of, of, of that life. And, and if fact, I can interrupt, that yeah. related so much to what was going on in the country. That related You know, so you discussed that at length. That relates so much to what was happening to, to in, in the country. And I actually came to a view that in the writing process, I actually was tapping into things that were not even... I, I had not even spoken about to myself, and and I was making uh, connections to them and and attaching meaning as I was writing. Not I had not even thought about things in many things in a particular way before writing them, and that's why I do have a sense that this is not the end of the journey for me. Um, the, my story and the telling of my story is still unfolding and I do look forward to continuing in the process. I'm not suggesting that it will be in the form of a book, but I, I just do feel that it has been so healing for me to allow the opening up of things that I had no, never opened myself up to and to engage with others on, the, on, the, on those things, yeah. And to confront your own issues, because you make no um, secret of the fact that you suffered quite badly from imposter syndrome when you were a little girl. Yeah. You, because the, your, your family was quite sort of rule-heavy, yeah. you were a little bit of an outsider. Yeah. Bright as you were, mm-hmm. you still there were self, self-doubts which you describe as coming across sometimes as arrogant. People would think, oh, she's a bit standoffish, but in fact what you were thinking was, oh, I can't do this. All of which I can only imagine was... Um, worsened when you went to the UK. That must have been really quite hard. Did you, how have you dealt with that? Have you forgiven yourself? Or, or have you admitted to yourself, actually, you can do this? You're not an imposter. It's a constant process. Uh, what I actually value most right now is that it is no longer so hard for me to face the moment. I, I, I could be feeling a lot of things and, and, and I'll just pause. What am I feeling? Why? And it, it's, it's getting to be a, a quicker process than um, it was when I was relating to it as a theoretical approach to living life fully. So now I, I, I could feel a mood change and I could allow it to change, but then I would pause 
uh, almost before I do too much damage to say what's happening and I would find a way of stopping the damage, addressing uh, things in the best way possible at the, at, the, at the moment. So yes, it's a process I am learning to forgive myself and I think I, for it to a large measure, I really have embraced my life and then and, and things that have happened uh, with, with a lot of acceptance. Mm. I think I've, 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 I'm embracing more and more and more with acceptance, yeah. Just want to come back to Ricky because I think the two of you did have a very special relationship. But he was a troubled young man. He'd been through a lot of stuff. He was drugs. He had his own issues with, firstly, with his brother, and this, that, and the other. And though for a, quite a long period, you weren't living together. He spent time with his dad. His dad died. So there were lots of issues in his life. Did, or busy as you were, did he confide in you? Did he? Did you know? To what extent did you know that there was stuff going on in his life? A beautiful, yeah. wife, beautiful yeah. woman in his life, Bianca, and his little yeah. boy. Yeah. Um, yeah. How much did you know? I, I did not know the details of much, but I was aware that he was battling from time to time, battling deeply from time to time with the stuff of life. And so, and, and unfortunately, some of my deep traits were taken by my children because that's what they live in. Even though he wanted openness and he would be open, um, he also carried a lot of guilt and he would bottle up a lot of stuff and he would not feel he wants to burden others with it. He would just give an indication, but the detail would not be there. So in, in the later years, um, when he's battling, he would go into a quiet a, a sort, of, sort of a shell. And when he comes out of it, he would speak to Bianca, his wife. He would speak about it. And at the center of it, he would talk about his heart being absolutely broken by a host of things, the uncaring world, um, young people, and, and just the suffering that we, we present them with instead of caring and, and paying attention to uh, helping their talents to, to, to shine and, and, and to hold us in the way that Humanity needs to, to, to be held. We, we crush them. We lead them down the paths of destruction. He would be worried about just how he himself is unable to help meaningfully. One, because he lived in privilege quite a lot, and to hope that people would be able to take care of, of themselves when most people are grappling with so much um, which is unnecessary deprivation when there's so much to be shared. He, and then his own life being painful. One of the things that his life had pain from was that he felt he does not understand how his mother spent many instances over quite a period of his growing up shut away from him. He had this thing of remembering that his mother would come back from work and just 
isolate herself from everybody and close herself up in the room. Sometimes coming out, sometimes never coming out until the, the, the following morning. And when I heard that, I, I was shattered because of the illusion that I had given to myself that I'm good. I, I protect them from things that I can't de define myself. I protect them from this troubled mood that I would find myself just spiraling into. And I'll protect them by going into my, my, my room and just being there because I couldn't cope with anything around me. But I thought they were not able to see that. I thought they would see the other's chaotic side where I'm just bubbly, I'm getting them to spend on things and I'm getting, I'm getting them all, you know, busy with me and, 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 and all of that, I, I thought. And conversations are just about things that are not normally spoken between um, older people and younger people and I'm feeling I'm open and bold and embracing my children. But the core thing is they felt it when I was disconnected and many times I was disconnected. It's a very tough lesson for a parent to learn which is one of the things that makes your book so useful because you do touch on so many things and that, that must have hit you like a dagger in the heart because it's something that you were not able to reverse and I suppose one of the things about life is that it's to get a good life you have to have balance and in your later years we're actually very good at getting balance um, and you would go off here and there not least did you go off on this expedition to Everest coming back to the therapy issue how therapeutic is it was it for you to be out there and that you've described the, the beauty of what you were seeing how therapeutic is that hmm. I don't think it's possible to well maybe I don't have the capacity to use words to precisely concisely deliver a picture of what it feels like to be in the mountain in that way I don't think I have uh, the, the capacity to do that. Yeah, it is. It is. It, it's. It's a cover that I don't think I personally receive in any space except when I am in the mountains, and and it's different with each mountain. But it is. It's a particular layering over me that is um, a beautiful gift it heals it 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 opens me up it moves me it yeah i just am very grateful that these opportunities of uh feeling in that way uh, do do present themselves in in our lives yeah yeah two last questions I want to come back to I want to come back to you said that this is sort of the journey is ongoing and I f feel that there may be more writing there may be more that you feel you need to do but just coming back to Ricky um, his artivism you're very keen that you should pick up his baton uh, and move along with that what was it that he wanted to do that you are going to be able to promote yeah Mental health and well-being is a huge, huge part of what Ricky really felt 
is important for, for human beings. He himself spoke about his challenges. So even though they were there, I think his opening up and speaking about it became a prompting for many to, to say, let me not ignore this. Let me find a way of dealing with it in my own life, but also in community with others and to, to help the lives of others. So the foundation, the Rikirik Foundation for the Promotion of Artivism, um, is going to be hugely focused on supporting the initiatives of individuals and organizations that are working in the space of deepening our mental well-being um, our, and our mental health. So that's a, a one. Young people and just supporting them in the ways that they need support for them to come into their own being uh, in the fields of arts and culture broadly defined. So using their talents for a, a meaningful purpose. And, and that's, that's the artivism part. But supporting young people in, the, in that, the foundation will be focused on um, building its capacity to support young people through fellowships. And they will be of different t types as young people may, may, may need support. The last part is actually just energizing us to connect arts and culture to living purposefully, yeah, and yeah. that's the artivism, you know, yeah. Um, and Ricky has wonderful brothers so that we were just here earlier, and um, so he, he clearly uh, his his legacy is beyond just what you have yeah. done and, and what the book has done. And on that subject, I think proceeds from the book actually will go towards the foundation. Absolutely. Is there a website? Can people find out more? So we will be launching the foundation officially. There, there had been indications of a launch, but with events hap happening, we, we've pushed it to the month of June. So we will be lo launching the foundation. The website will be up. The first campaign would be uh, uh, announced. So let, please look forward to connecting to the foundation in this way because we don't intend to build a bureaucracy that is supposed to be doing things on its own. No, we intend to connect to uh, others who are working in the various fields which intersect with the foundation's work. So we're looking forward to uh, everybody just connecting in the ways that they are interested in. Yeah. I love it that you say we. You have so much embraced this, haven't yes. you, and taken it on. But just lastly, you mentioned that uh, how healing this has been, healing journeys are just that. They don't necessarily have an ending. This has started something for you, hasn't it? It started a, bowl, a, a little bit like a sort of an avalanche, you know, a sort of mountain of snow yeah. coming down. Yeah. Yeah. Will you be writing more? What do you, what do you I mean, after this, uh, so what do you feel? Well, just just using that metaphor of um, an avalanche coming down, when I shared with uh, Sarah Kumalo at that at the um, uh, French Literary Festival, how coming down from uh, Mount Everest Base Camp, uh, I had imagined that I would continue in this you know, state of euphoria that I felt and be able to handle things and so on. But it was a complete opposite. It almost like I went into an ultra-depressive state, ultra, ultra-shattering again uh, upon coming down. She, she said to me, 
it is very common that coming back from the mountain is followed by a state of some form of depression. And so I am now at a place where I've written this book. I have done the outpouring. I am sharing with others about the existence of the book. But I do want to prepare myself for the next steps so that I do not again just roll into something and find myself completely depleted. So I will take some time to, to feel and sense how uh, I take the continued st- telling of my story forward. Yeah. Louisa, thank you. From that point of view, it's especially nice to see such a big smile on your face because I imagine that the smile left your face for, for a very long time. So it's lovely to see you smiling again. Thank you so much for thank your time. You. Thank you so much for your book. Ah, thank you so much. And thank you for the beautiful, impactful work you do out here at Women's Home. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.